You know, one of the great questions that everyone, I believe, everybody um, on earth, but um, one of the great questions we all must consider, um, and I believe one of the questions that all of us, if we're Christians, we should ask ourselves over and over again, it's really two questions, and it's these questions. It's, is Jesus really who he claims to be? And why should we believe him? Okay? (laughs) These are big questions. This is perhaps the biggest question we may ever ask. Is Jesus who he really claims to be? And why should we believe him? Okay, those are two big questions. And we've been studying the Gospel of John for the last several months. And today we find ourselves in chapter 5. And in this story, this account that we read today, Jesus makes a bold claim about who he is. And he explains why we should believe him. And I think these are, this is an important thing for us to understand in our lives, an important thing for us to understand today. And before we pick up our passage uh, that we're going to get into today, i got to set the stage by going back and talking a little bit, a recap of last week. If you remember last week, we studied this account where Jesus heals a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. I mean, nearly four decades, a man had been paralyzed. Jesus walks up to him and with a word heals him. And the man begins to walk. And it's this beautiful story that we looked at last week, that where Jesus gives us a glimpse into what he came to this world to do. It points us to his desire to give us life and give us abundant life, and and it points us to his resurrection. He is the God of new life. He is the God of resurrection. And you'd think that this story would have a happy ending, right? Like Jesus heals this guy, this guy now stands up, he's walking around, and he says, Jesus, you know, I'll follow you wherever you go, but that's not how the story ends. Because there's one really minor detail, or one really significant detail that we passed over last week, but it's crucial to this story. It's this. Jesus healed this man, on, not just on any random day. He healed him on the Sabbath. And Jesus healed a man on a holy day, the day of Sabbath, the day of rest. And the Sabbath is a day where you were supposed to put down all your work, and you were to rest and enjoy the presence of God. And Jesus, however, he heals a man on the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders, in their mind, they go, Jesus is working on the Sabbath. He's breaking the Ten Commandments. He's breaking the Fourth Commandment. Who does this guy think he is, the religious leaders think? This brazen lawbreaker. Jesus, How? why would he do such a thing? And so the religious leaders, they're ticked off. And they want to find out that they don't know who healed this man. They just know that this guy's walking around. And they find him and they say, hey, who healed you? We demand to know who healed you. And why, how are you able to walk today? And this man, you would think he would be like, I'm not telling you. This guy saved my life. I'm going to look out for this guy. Like, I, you know, snitches get stitches. You know, we're not doing that. And this ungrateful man, though, he turned after Jesus has healed him. Why would he do this? But he, he turns in Jesus' name to the authorities. He says, oh, is this guy Jesus of Nazareth? He healed me. And immediately the religious leaders begin seeking out Jesus to persecute him. And our story last week ended with chapter 5, verse 18. And it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but Jesus was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now this sets off the religious leaders. And Jesus responds, they're, per- they're seeking to kill him. And Jesus responds to the religious leaders in, uh, if you've got chapter 5 open in your lap, verses 19 through 29, I'm not going to read those, 
Uh, but Jesus essentially says uh, two things to the religious leaders. He, he responds to them. And you can imagine this is a tension-filled room as Jesus sort of gives this sermon. But he essentially he claims to be one with God the Father, and he claims that the Father, God the Father, has given into his hands two things. The authority to give life, meaning which includes healing, which includes all these sort of other things, and the authority to judge, which, is the, which means he has the authority to forgive sins and to punish sinners. And now you have to understand that in the mind of a monotheistic Jewish religious leader at this time, only God can do those things in their minds. And therefore, Jesus, therefore, here, when he claims that I have the authority, the Father has given authority to me to give life and to judge, their, their radar immediately kicks off and they go, he's claiming to be God. Only God has that kind of authority to give life and to judge. Who does this man think he is? And if you're here and you're wondering, you're like, why did they kill Jesus? Like, if you've ever wondered why Jesus was crucified, you're like, he seemed nice, he healed people, he fed people, why would, why would people want to kill him? Well, this is the reason why. They didn't kill Jesus because he was a nice guy, you know? They didn't kill Jesus because he did nice things. They killed Jesus because he was claiming to be equal with God. Leaders, the religious leaders had no framework for this, and it angered them. Because not only did it shatter their categories, it threatened their entire understanding of all of life. It threatened their understanding of justice, their understanding of morality, their understanding of religion, their understanding of culture, their understanding of status. All of these things come crumbling on in on them when they see a man who claims to have the authority that only God alone has. The religious leaders killed Jesus because through his teachings, his life, and his commands, he threatened their entire understanding of life. And so I want to stop here, and I want to offer the first important point that I think we can learn from this passage, and it's the first question that I pose to you today. Why do we struggle to believe and trust Jesus? Why? Why we struggle to believe and trust Jesus? Here's the reason, I believe. Because the claims and the authority of Jesus often confront some of the most strongly held beliefs in our lives. One of the great barriers to faith for people who are not Christians and one of the great causes for doubt among Christians is that when we read the Bible and we read the Gospels and we read about the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the claims of Jesus, it often confronts strongly held beliefs and practices in our lives. And when Jesus confronts us, when he confronts the things we believe, when he confronts the things we do, it can make us angry, doesn't it? It can make us frustrated. It can even make us afraid. It can make us feel threatened, and it can even lead us to doubt Jesus or dismiss him altogether. Who, uh, he's confronting the way I view this part of my life. You know what? I don't need that. I'm going to walk away from Jesus. I don't need this. And this is what happened to the religious leaders. Jesus, in this story, confronts two of the most strongly held beliefs the religious leaders had. The Sabbath and the nature of who God is. He, this is what made him so mad. So in the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment is the Sabbath. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Sabbath is a day of rest commanded by God. God has commanded that we work six days and we rest a day. 
And the purpose of the Sabbath was for people to take time to rest from their work, from their striving, from their productivity, and to find their contentment in God alone rather than their work. And the purpose of the Sabbath was for the people of God to enjoy the presence of God. And see, God knows. God, he, know, God, he knows everything. God knows that work and busyness distract us from sensing His presence and enjoying His presence. And the command, the, the, the fourth commandment, that remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, it's for our good. And by the way, the fourth commandment still applies today. You know, like it's one of the, it's the one commandment that we brag about breaking, isn't it? Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm just so busy. I haven't had a day off in months. And we boast about that like it's some sort of virtue. God himself has commanded us to take a break and enjoy him. God knows that we are distracted by our work and our productivity, and we often will put our identity, will put our self-worth in how much we produce and how much we give to the world and how much we earn and how much status we have. And God says, you need some time to take a break, to stop striving and producing and have a day where you just receive the presence of God. The Sabbath still applies to us today. But the religious leaders in the first century, they, they took a sort of a different way of understanding the Sabbath. They recognized that it was a command by God. And, and we should give them credit for this. They took the Sabbath very seriously. But you have to understand, in their minds, they go, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's kind of vague. How do you remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? Like, uh, how do you honor, what, what, how do you remember? What does remember mean? Well, how do you, what does keep it holy mean? And then maybe they even ask, well, what is work? What exactly is work? So if God doesn't want us to rest from work for a day, what exactly is work? So what they did is the Pharisees created what they called, or what, what is called a fence around the law. Okay, so imagine this is, the, this is the law, this little podium right here. Don't break the law, okay? And so what they said is, okay, we're afraid, we, we, we don't want to break the law, so instead of just staying away from the law, what we'll do is we will build a fence around it so that we won't even have an opportunity to get close to the law. So what they did is they added additional laws to what God had already said. So God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's the purpose of the Sabbath is to enjoy God. And they said, okay, well, we want to remember the Sabbath day, but we don't, that's kind of vague. And so to make sure that we don't dishonor the Sabbath, we're going to add additional rules. Okay, you can't put out a fire on the Sabbath day. You can't tie a rope on the Sabbath day. And apparently, you can't heal somebody of paralysis of 38 years on the Sabbath day. That's considered work. And so what they did was they created a fence around the law, meaning they put man-made rules in place to keep people from getting close to breaking the, the commandment. And they got all kinds of specific about the things you can't do on the Sabbath. And what they did over time is the rules that had been created by man they elevated to the same level as the law of God. And their entire lives were wrapped up in obeying these laws that they had created. They spent their whole lives interpreting the Sabbath to be this event that went a certain way. And you don't do these certain things, and you do these certain things. And it was very predictable to them. It required sacrifice. It went a certain way. And their identity and their culture and their practices, some of these people have been doing this their entire lives, was wrapped up in this specific practice on this specific day. This was their life. And Jesus comes on the scene, heals a guy, and in their minds, this is blatant disregard of God's command and their way of life. And think about it. This was a threat to their entire identity. 
They're like, look, who does this guy think he is? I've been honoring the Sabbath my entire life, and here he comes, and he starts healing people? And not only that, Jesus really sets them off when he accuses them, when they get upset about him for this, he accuses them. He says, you missed the point of the Sabbath. And to a religious leader, they're like, wait a second, I've studied the Bible. I know what the Sabbath is. Who are you to tell me that I don't know what the Sabbath is? And Jesus is saying, look, you guys, the purpose of the Sabbath is to experience God's presence. And Jesus says to them, I am equal with God. And by healing that man, I was demonstrating my presence to him. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath, Jesus essentially says. And he says, look, you guys are so busy honoring the letter of the law that you've missed the point of it. And so Jesus questions their interpretation and their practice of this very important cultural law, and he claims equality with God. And Jesus confronts their deeply held beliefs, their convictions, and their practices. And this frustrates them, it offends them, and for this reason they seek to dismiss Jesus and his claims of authority. Okay, so that's them. I think today, you and me, 2021, New York City, I think that the driving reason behind why so many people refuse to follow Jesus, and one of the reasons that many of us, even those of us in this room, struggle with doubt is because when we study the life of Jesus, sometimes his commands, his way of life, they confront things about our lives, our beliefs that challenge us and it hurts and we don't like it. See, if you really follow Jesus, if you really seek to obey him and learn from him and imitate him, there will be things that he says and does that will confront your political convictions. There will be things that Jesus says and does in the Gospels that will confront the way you use your money. There will be things that Jesus says and does in the Gospels that will confront the way you understand dating and marriage and sex. There will be things when you read the Gospels about Jesus that confronts the way you understand forgiveness and loving your enemies. You see, the Pharisees, they watch Jesus' life and commands, and the reason they got offended is because Jesus was staking his claim and his authority over life and judgment. And they said, whoa, 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 wait a second, Jesus. You're claiming something. You're claiming authority that only God has. I think our culture is a little different. We don't get upset that Jesus claims to be God. We get upset when Jesus stakes authority on our lives, and we say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Jesus. I'll only I have that kind of authority over my life. Who do you think you are to stake a claim on my life in this particular area or in this particular area? You see, there's been a shift. The Pharisees were offended because Jesus claimed to have authority that they believed only God had. We get offended because Jesus claims authority that we wish only we had. And I've seen some religious people and non-religious people get really mad when they're confronted with what the Bible says about forgiving their enemies or loving refugees and foreigners. I've seen Christians do backflips trying to reinterpret what the Bible says about tithing and about generosity. I've seen many Christians just flat out say, I know what the Bible says about dating, marriage, sex, money, forgiveness, you name it. I frankly just don't care. 
You may, see, we will often say, you know what? Jesus doesn't have authority in this part of my life. I'm going to take authority of this. And when Jesus tries to touch on that part of my life, we will dismiss Jesus, we will push him aside, and we'll say, no thanks, Jesus. Only I have the authority to claim, to stake that, a claim on that part of my life. And we say, you know what? I just don't care. And in effect, we say, I have the authority, we have the authority to decide what Jesus, Jesus claims over our life. And when we do this, we are no different from the Pharisees and the scribes. And the reason many of us struggle to believe God and trust God is this. It's that the claims and the authority of Jesus often confront strongly held beliefs in our lives. This was true of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, and I think it's true for us as well. The religious leaders at this point, they're furious. And they essentially ask Jesus, well, well why should we believe you? And his answer is our text for today. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 3. It was a long introduction, wasn't it? All right. You're going to be here all day. Just kidding. Chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another, however, who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. And he's talking about John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has indeed sent me. And the Father who has sent me, who sent me, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is that it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Ouch. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you ever believe my words? So here, I want to give you why we can trust and believe in Jesus. Why can we trust? Why should we trust Jesus? Why should we trust his commands? Why should we trust his authority over our lives? This is a big question, especially these days, when it seems like the way of Jesus goes so against the grain of what we're told is the way to experience abundant life. And even sometimes the way of Jesus even goes against our own desires. How and why should we trust Jesus? Back in the first century, in, in the, the way that Jewish jurisprudence was carried out, and similar to today, if, if somebody made a claim, uh, if somebody made a claim in a, a legal claim, you would need two or three witnesses to corroborate your claim for it to be accepted. And so Jesus knows this, and he says, look, I've made a claim. I'm equal with God. I am God. I'm the son, I am the Son of God, not a Son of God. I'm the Son of God. I understand I've made a claim. 
But if you want to believe me, let me give you two or three witnesses. That's what Jesus is doing. He gives two or three reasons they can trust his claim. He says, you have my testimony. I'm telling you that I'm the son of God. All authority has been given to me by the Father. Let me give you three more reasons why you should trust me. The first, he says, is John the Baptist. And I think we can apply this to our lives as one of the reasons we can trust Jesus is because of personal stories from other people who know Jesus. Jesus says, look, John the Baptist, uh, it is in verse 32 and 35, through 35, John the Baptist, he says, John the Baptist already told his followers that I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist at this time was a reputable prophet uh, with a large following. Jesus even says here that the religious leaders at one point really respected him. And Jesus says, listen to him. Everything I've said about myself, John the Baptist has said too. I'm not, I'm not the only one saying that I'm, I'm the son of God, Jesus says. John the Baptist said the same thing. And he says, go ask him. And I think there's something to be said here of listening to the stories of others. You know, I know in my own life, when I struggle with doubt of my faith, and we all struggle with doubt, or, you know, we all go through seasons of spiritual dryness. And, you know, those are seasons where you're like, I read the Bible, I pray, I'm doing it, go to church, but, you know, I just wonder, am I the only one who believes this stuff? Like, does Jesus really make a difference in people's lives? And one of the things I've learned that when I'm having doubts or when I'm going through a dry season, one of the best remedies for my spirit is to listen to the stories of other people tell me about what God has done in their life. You know, there have been Sundays where we invite people. One of the things we often do in our church is we'll invite someone in our church to come up and share how God has changed their life. And there have been so many cool stories in our church of people saying, look, Jesus has saved me, he's given me new life, he's restored my relationships, he's helped me overcome addiction, I am a new person, save my marriage, I am a new person because of Jesus' work in my life. And we've had those stories told from up here at our church, and those are some of the most powerful Sundays, because there's something in us that goes, I'm not the only one. God has done something in that person's life. I believe that he can do that in my life. And it corroborates what Jesus says about himself in the scriptures. You know, at Easter, we're going to have a baptism, hopefully multiple baptisms. And when we do baptisms at Crossroads, one of the things we do is we give people the opportunity to share why they're being baptized. And they'll say, the reason I'm being baptized is because I once was going this way. And I once was this person. But God, in his mercy, through Christ, reached in, grabbed a hold of me, took me off the path that was leading to destruction and put me on a path to life. And today I'm being baptized because I believe that Jesus has been true to who he says he is in my life. And we baptize a person and then everybody goes nuts with applause and excitement. Why? Because there's something in us that loves to hear people tell the stories of how God has been faithful to them. And it encourages and and it stirs up faith in us when we hear the stories of other people. You know, I mentioned last week that I'm going to be going on sabbatical this summer, and one of the purposes of sabbatical is to just restore my joy in, in God and to, to re, spiritually re-energize. And so one of the things that I'm planning to do is to read Christian biographies of missionaries, famous businessmen and women that were Christians that lived their lives for the glory of Christ, because I've learned in my life that there is nothing better than a good biography on a faithful Christian who's been through perhaps suffering, but has 
has endured and has accomplished great things for Christ because Jesus through When I read biographies of faithful people, it encourages and stirs up my faith in Jesus. And so I'm going to be doing that on my sabbatical to stir up my faith. And it reinforces the claims that Jesus makes about himself. And Jesus says, the words of others bear witness to who I am. But he says, you know what? There's a greater witness than just words of man. He says, look at what I've done. In verse 36, he says, I have a testimony that's greater than that of John the Baptist and of anybody else, for that matter, for the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And you're like, well, what works is he talking about? He's talking about what he just did. He's talking about healing a guy from paralysis. Jesus is like, you want to know why you should believe my claims that I have authority and that I'm the Son of God? I just healed a man who was paralyzed for 40 years. Like he's up, he's walking around Jerusalem right now. Like he's training for a 5K right now. He was paralyzed yesterday. The very things I'm doing bear witness of who I am. Jesus says, you want to you believe what I say is true? Just watch my life. Watch what I do. And one of the things that he's speaking of is he's saying, I, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to do something so amazing that you ought not to be able to deny who I am. And he'll continue to heal the sick. He'll continue. He'll raise Lazarus from the dead. But more importantly, he will raise himself from the dead. And that's the most important thing. Because if Jesus raises from, raise himself from the dead, that means he has authority over life and death and that he is God. And listen, there are a lot of things about the scriptures. There's a lot of things about Christianity. There's a lot of things about the commands of Jesus. Many of the stories in the Bible leave me scratching my head. And even as a pastor, there are days when I have doubts about all of this. But the question I always go back to is this. Do I believe that Jesus rose from the grave? And if I believe he did, then I must submit to him as God because only God could do such a thing. And if he is God, then that means every claim of authority that he makes in the scriptures, he has over my life. And listen, I don't have the time to go into all the arguments, but the evidence to me for the resurrection is very strong. Listen, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, listen, Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to many witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul says that the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter, to the 12 disciples, to James, and then Paul, and to more than 500 other people. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians, he says, most of these people are still alive. Go ask them. In other words, he's like, go ask them. And many skeptics will say, okay, yeah, yeah, well, Paul said that, but those witnesses were compromised. These are people that just wanted to believe that Jesus was, had rose from the dead and that he was the Messiah. Or, you know, these are people that had something to gain from it. They had power. They gained power by claiming that, you know, they, by starting a new religion and claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. The, the disciples made up the idea of the resurrection to elevate Jesus' status and to deify him. But the truth is that argument just flat out doesn't stack up. And here's why. Paul, for example, he wrote the letter of Corinthians where he claimed that Jesus rose from the dead in A.D. 55, okay? That's 20, that's 20 years after Jesus was crucified. So this letter is written only 20, 30 years after Jesus' death. You cannot tell a false story about a historical event about someone 30 years after it happened where there were witnesses and get away with it. You can't tell a fake story. I mean, imagine for a moment if a new biography of Richard Nixon came out. And it said that, boy, 
Richard Nixon was the greatest president of the 20th century. He led with integrity. Man, he was a great guy. He served two full terms, won the Nobel Prize for opening the door with China and securing peace around the world. He was revered until his death. He was turned to for advice from every president since, and he set the example for the modern presidency, and he rose from the dead, and he's still alive. (laughs) Would you believe that book? Of course not. Why? Because some of you in this room remember watching Richard Nixon's resignation with your own eyes. You can't change history in 30 years. You can't do it. And Paul says, look, 20, 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead, Paul says there's 500 witnesses. And let me name a few of them. Paul is saying this happened. And listen, if Rome really wanted to to stamp out Christianity, all they had to do was to present a body of Jesus. And yet they never did. And all the apostles died for their claim that Jesus rose from the dead. They all suffered. Rome, people tried to get them to recant what they said about Jesus rising from the dead. And every single one of the apostles, not a single one, one, none of them ever gained influence or prestige, like some people claim, like Paul was just making a power grab. No, Paul was a religious leader. He gave up his power to state that he saw Jesus rise from the dead. And none of the apostles ever gained a claim or influence. Every single one of them died at the hands of the empire for their steadfast belief that Jesus was raised from the dead. Listen, if, if, if them claiming that Jesus rose from the dead was a hoax, it's pretty impressive that 500 people, none of them squealed when their life was on the line. The Gospels were written within the lifetimes of people who were alive at the time of Jesus. Over 500 people claimed to be witnesses of the resurrection, and we have no record that any one of them recanted their claims, even as many of them were killed for it. I like what Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher, says, I choose to believe the witnesses that had their throats cut. (laughs) Jesus says, you want to believe, you want to know, you want to know why you can believe my claims about my authority? Look at my life. And I think the same goes for us. Look at what he did. He rose from the dead. And we, and we, this is the question for all of us. Did he rise from the dead or not? Not do you like what Jesus says about money or forgiveness or sex. Or, did he rise from the dead? And if the answer is yes, then, then we submit ourselves to him because he is God. Jesus says, look at my life. This was a challenge to the religious leaders and it's a challenge to you and me. Can we believe that Jesus is the son of God? Just look at his life. Now, the third thing Jesus says is he says, look to the scriptures. And I don't have enough time, so for the sake of time, I'm going to basically stop right here. But the final witness Jesus points to in the scripture, or in this passage, is he points to the scriptures themselves. He tells the religious leaders, he says, look, you guys study the scriptures diligently, but you've missed the point of them. The Bible is not a book of rules to which you bind yourself to. It is the story about God who sent his son to come into the world to redeem the world. And I am that son. You give yourself to this book, he says, but the book is pointing to me. And he says, come to me where life is. He says, Moses talked about me. Like the the religious leaders, they were all about, you know, Moses was their guy. And Jesus is like, all right, so Moses wrote Genesis. And Moses said that there was a seed, a child, a son that was coming who would 
be bru- his heel would be bruised by the enemy, the serpent, meaning a nail would go through his foot, but he would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus was talking about himself. He was like, look, you guys, you talk about Moses being your boy. Moses was talking about me the whole time. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in the scriptures you have life, but it's in me you have life because the scriptures point to me. And he invites them to believe in him and have life in him. And that's the invitation for you and me as well. Life is not found in religion. Life is not found in rebellion. It is found only in Jesus because the Bible points to him every step of the way. There's an old song that we probably learned as kids if you grew up in church. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we can talk about how that's a childish song, but there's no truer statement than that. Jesus loves me, this we know, for the Bible tells us so. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for your authority. And thank you for putting your authority into the hands of your son, Jesus, who came, and even though he, in, in as he had the authority to give life and judgment. He could have judged us in our sins, but instead, he took that judgment onto himself and he went to the cross, the death we deserved, and he gave us life that only he could had the authority to give. And because he rose from the dead, he now tells us that we will rise if we believe in him. And so God, would we believe in you, give us faith to believe and give us courage to submit to your authority in all areas of our life, believing that you are good. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.